The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. So, we've, throughout this uh, course, we've seen that each cult that we've studied and every occultic practice has some version of the same lies that are packed within it. It is uh, taught in every way uh, from every cult in any way possible that Jesus is not necessary. That's, that's the first underlying lie. Jesus is, is not necessary for you. That truth Access to the truth, the ability to understand, grow in knowledge, whatever you want to call it. The truth itself lies within you, and you have the power to save yourself. These are the the lies that are packed into every single cult. And it's all the same. It's all the same. And if you think about that for just a second and you go all the way back in your Bibles to Genesis, you can see the source of that lie right there in Genesis 3 in the serpent asking the woman, did God really say? We've been told over and over in the Bible that, listen, you cannot save yourself. And we see that in the Scriptures. You, man will not be saved by his own might. We see, we've seen that in Samuel. It's reiterated over and over in Samuel. That you will not be saved by your own power and your own might. And yet, here is the person knocking on your door or the little pamphlet that's being given to you somewhere in the marketplace that, that is basically a, a summary of that doctrine. Did God really say you can't save yourself? Well, I'm here to tell you, for the low, low price of $9.99, you can save yourself. And it's, it's all packed in there, but it's the same lies that's been there since the beginning. And it, what's interesting is as you read the Bible, you also see Paul concerned with these very same lies as he addresses the churches that he's writing to. And so 2 Corinthians eleven three 3, in your um, handout, you'll see the scriptures there that I'm citing that are uh, recorded there for you, so easy access. But you're more than welcome to turn there in your Bible if you want to. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he's recognizing the same thing too. That the people that are coming to you, Corinthian church, and that are seeking to persuade you away from doctrine, they have the same source. And they're actually saying the same things that the serpent said to Eve. Did God really say? And they're tempting to bring you away from truth into falsehood. And so, importantly for the Christian, if we are to protect or have any measure of protection over ourselves and over our family from these kinds of traps, we have to learn to discern truth from falsehood. There's no way around it. There's no, you know, easy, I, I, I'm, I'm, I like the easy, 
I, I, you know, I, I think we're probably all similar in this. Like, if, you know, you, you look up on YouTube how to replace a sink. I did this one time <laughs> back in my, you know, optimistic days. <laughs> I had to replace a, a leaky, you know, with a sink and all this stuff, and we we're going to, you know, do it. I was like, I can do this myself. I saw on YouTube a two-minute video, and, it, and on the scale of wrenches, you know, it was like, had the wrench scale of difficulty. Is it a five-wrench job, or is it a one-wrench job? It was a one-wrench job. So I was like, it's right here, baby. It's a one-wrench job. I can do it. And, <laughs> and you know... Eight hours later, the sink was still dripping. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, you know, I put it all back the way he told me to. What did you say? Yeah. I don't need any help. <laughs> this is why I normally offer two building blocks so my wife can take the other one. <laughs> so I can say whatever I want to in there. Yeah, it was, it was several trips to the hardware store. It was, you know, eight hours and something, and it was still dripping. To make matters worse, I call the plumber, and he comes out. He is literally there for not ten minutes, I bet. Not, I mean, not even. And it's all fixed. And I'm like, no, I don't think you understand the problem. <laughs> you see? <laughs> it's... It's really leaking. It's really bad. I, I got it fixed up fine. I had tape going all over everything. Anyway, it was really bad. But my point is that I like the easy. If it says the easy, I like the easy. And, and I would love to tell you there is an easy way to be able to go from, you know, not being able to discern truth from falsehood to discerning. And, oh, here it is. It's three easy steps. It's a one-wrench job. And, and truth is, it's not. It is a lifelong pursuit. And there's no way around it but taking the Bible that you have, opening it up, and reading it. And when you don't understand it, getting with somebody who does and saying, help me understand this. I don't understand it. There's no other way to do it than that. And, and even when you think, man, I've really got, I, I've got a good grasp on some of this stuff. You get a knock on the door, and you hear something you've never heard before, and you're confused by it still. And you go, oh, I have to think about that. I don't even know what to think about that. And you have to go back and study and get with people who know and ask them those questions and, and let them teach you. You must be discipled. There's just no way around it. The Bible gives us very clear warnings about the dangers that exist within falsehood that will lead you astray. And, and they, they are there for every one of us. And, and the more you grow in your faith, the harder those problems get. So the problems that come to you are not, you know, maybe the, the simple ones that, well, I've learned that and I've, I've got that down and I can knock this one out of the park. The ones that come to you now are fastballs. And you think, well, oh, or maybe I should say curveballs. You know, the, the harder ones to hit. And now you're going, well, i got to think about that even, even more. There's no way around it but to learn and to invest our lives in studying the Scriptures. Philippians 3, 2 
Paul gives us this warning starkly. He says, look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Is a particularly insidious version that's attacking the Philippians where they're saying you have to become Jewish, you have to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Christ even. And you must do that. And he's telling that to the Gentiles and he's saying you, that's not true. Look out for those. And then Revelation twenty two fifteen tells us what the fate is of those people. He says outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexual, sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So it's not only there as a temptation, the fate of the one that falls prey to it is severe. So the stakes for, some, for falling into falsehood could not be higher than eternal punishment. So you have in front of you the, the way to grow and, and to discern truth from falsehood, and you have within it the warning about what happens to those who don't. So the stakes are as high as they possibly could get, and there's no way for me to possibly make them higher for you. Go ahead. Of course. Yeah. So you're, you're, yeah, so they just, the stakes just grow in severity, of course. So a first, so we got to think about protection. How, how is it that we actually arm ourselves against these kinds of fiery darts? And a first measure, and this is not exhaustive. This is not everything. This is a, this is a hey, here's some first good steps that you must take. Um, a first measure of protection the Christian can take as he seeks, or she seeks, to defend himself or herself and this person's family against the devilish lies is to see everything in his life as a battle of a spiritual nature. Okay, where do I get that? Well, Ephesians 6.12 gives us the frame of reference. It gives us the, the mindset that the Christian should be in every morning, uh, every day. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What I was trying to get at with the, the second verse there is to, to help you see that you, as a Christian, don't have the... You're not afforded the luxury of, if you want to call it that, of being blind to what's happening in the world around you. That, that Paul is saying, look, you're not... The wrestle, the struggle that you're having is not against flesh and blood. Does, now, does it come to you as flesh and blood? Well, it comes to you as flesh and blood, Sure. But what he's trying to say is there, is, there are realities behind that. Now, I, I want to be, be careful to kind of help you see sort of the, the stark realities, the, maybe the differences that we, of the worlds we live in. in. In America, 
we go, we go toward strictly physical. So I think this warning would hit us square in the face, or it should hit us square in the face, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We will sit here in church and, and acknowledge that there is an adversary, the devil, who roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we will all agree to that here in this room and you know, even acknowledge, hey, there's a real adversary out there. But then when we leave here, we will be functional atheists when it comes to the devil's activity in our lives. Where when we interact with anything, we take it at face value. And if someone were to say, if I were to say to you, I need you to think about this, that as you walk around your day, you should do so understanding that one, there is a real spiritual adversary, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, with a legion of forces with him. Two, some of them know everything about you. Really think about this. That there, there are spiritual forces that know everything about you. They know everything you struggle with. They, they've seen it. They've watched you struggle with it. They know things that you do or say or think, or maybe voice when no one's around or no one's looking. They, they know these things. I, 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 you can even see this in the passage that I, I brought up not that long ago in the Seven Sons of Sceva in Acts either 19 or 17, and I can't remember which one. What is it? 19. Look, why don't you just look there? I didn't plan on going here, but I'll just let's, let's just open your Bible to Acts 19. I, I want you to, to see this. It's starting in verse 11. Um, Acts 19, 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, notice their description there, itinerant Jewish exorcists. So they're going around, they are Jewish, and they are exorcising uh, demons. Undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, so they didn't actually believe in the name of the Lord, it seems, but just chose to invoke the name of the Lord over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Notice that is not from belief at all. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? So, uh, some translations say, Paul, I've heard of, Paul, I recognize, same, same deal. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, 
and the name of the Lord Je- and, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see what, what's happening here is there's two aspects of that. One is the dark arts that people were involved in. They realized that the demonic forces that were in that man were brought about in connection to the dark arts that they were practicing. And so they said, wait a minute, woo-hoo, we got to get rid of this. They also turned to Jesus, and that, that included giving up all kinds of books which cost in some total 50,000 pieces of silver, which is significant. But there's another aspect of this, which is where the demon communicates exactly what they know. They know Jesus. They recognize Paul because of the works that he's doing. They don't recognize him. The important part of that is there, there is a, a, an adversary who has a network of communication designed to target those who are bearing the name of Christ. And you're on the list. Now, you have a demon following you? I can't say that for sure. What I can say is that we need to think like that. That there are demonic forces that know us and that know where we are weak. Now, we could go the opposite direction, where um, you might have, we might have brothers and sisters, we do have brothers and sisters in various countries who see everything as demonic in nature. A cold, that's a demon. Uh, the flu, uh, that's a demon. Uh, you have an amoeba, that's a demon, right? It, it, it's true, that literally happened to me on an island in Africa. Uh, was a person had an amoeba and was throwing up and got, had something from the water and was just violently ill. And the people are gathering around him and trying to cast out what they think might be a demon. And so you, you could go the opposite direction. You see everything as demonic in nature. And, and that's not where we should go either. But, but what I would say is even when you have a cold, if we're looking at everything as spiritual in nature, when you're resources are depleted, when you're tired, you are the least able to defend yourself against spiritual attacks. Late at night, that's when desires creep up in people. Why is it? Because they're tired and cannot resist the devil. It's plain to anybody who's ever faced that kind of temptation. It's plain. So the point is that we should see all of the weaknesses in our lives as areas in which Satan aims to attack. Is everything that comes your way satanic in nature? Not necessarily. But it's, he's going to prey upon every weakness you have in your life. Does that make sense? There is a balance there. We must understand it. Okay, so I think the first thing is we're looking at things as spiritual in nature. And what that does is it prevents us from looking at occultic practice, um, sorry, I lost my place. 
Yeah. This prevents us from looking at occultic practice as fake or harmless or seeing peddlers of a false gospel as well-meaning. Instead, we can see it as it really is. It's a devious, intentional strategy to drag as many people to hell as possible. So, this is a common thing that I, you'll hear, or, or I'll, I'll hear, uh, with people who talk to others who might come to their door, you know, Mormon knocking on the door, you know, wanting to share the gospel, and you bring them in, and you give them a glass of water, and you sit down, and you kind of you talk to them because you're, you're, you're like, well, I mean, they're good people. They're just, they're nice. But I think that betrays not only something that John actually tells us in 1 John, but it, all, it, it also betrays the reality of, a, of what a spiritual attack is designed to be. Paul tells us that every one of Satan's emissaries walks around as an angel of, what, darkness? They have a sign on them that says, I'm a demon. Send me away. <coughs> no. They, they walk around disguising themselves as an angel of light, and the design of that is to beguile you. It's, it's to disarm you. And now I want to I make another little connection here. The Mormon that knocks on your door, you have to understand, as we'll talk about next week, is also himself deceived. Okay? So I'm not saying, well, that gives you a reason to attack him, you know, or anything like that. Like, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But to even politely refuse someone at your doorstep and, and be very blunt with them is warranted. Because what they are peddling is designed to drag as many people to hell as possible. That's its purpose. You can save yourself. That's what they're on the doorstep telling you. And, it's and they're going to tell your neighbor that too. And they're going to tell their neighbor and the design of that is that the person would die and never hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ and never be saved by it. Timothy. We're coming to that, so give me just a minute. <laughs> give me just a minute. <laughs> uh, so Colossians 2.4, um, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And you, you listen to the, the pitch, I promise you, if you were to listen to the pitch of a Mormon that really knows their stuff, all right, really knows their Mormon doctrine, and they were to walk through the Bible with you, you would go, well, that sounds plausible. You're, you're, I promise you, you're, you're going to see what they're, you're going to see what they're pointing to in Scripture, and you're, you're going to, you're going to see the dots that they're going to, you're going to go, well, 
Yeah, I never really thought about it that way. The arguments have always been plausible. They've always been somehow, in some way, connected to Scripture. They're not so obvious that even the infant can knock it out of the park. No. Paul's, Paul's warning the church at Colossae, you've got to be on guard. You really have to study to know and understand. And if you don't, it will trick you too. So in that regard, we should see the doctrines of the cults, or the occult for that matter, as akin to a yeast which will work its way into your heart over time until it has permeated the whole lump. Jesus actually gives this warning to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 5. He says, um, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We, we bought no bread. We brought no bread. <laughs> And Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet do you not remember the five loaves or for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I have to think that he said that really slowly. Then they, understand, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they get totally confused, and they think that he's talking about leaven. He said something about leaven. Did he say something about leaven? Did you bring bread? I didn't bring bread. I didn't bring no bread. And he's like, what? I can make bread out of nothing. <laughs> like, stop talking about bread. <laughs> I just fed like a billion people with not much. All right, so forget about bread for just a second. I said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, he's talking about the teaching, guys. He's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they, they finally put it together. But what is Jesus warning them about? There, there's an insidious nature to false teaching that works its way into your heart and begins to grow. And that false teaching causes you to doubt who Jesus actually is. Is he? Can, can I save myself? Am I the one who, who actually has the responsibility to say, I, I think I've really got to do something here. All of a sudden you begin to doubt that God is the one who saves. That God has provided salvation in Christ. That he's calling you to trust in the sacrifice that Christ paid for you on the cross. And I'll tell you where this comes up in the lives of a lot of Christians. is particularly in the midst of sin. There's a struggle you're going through. It's a very sinful struggle, and you're, you're, you're guilty over it time and again. You confessed it to the Lord, this sin that you committed, and do you ever hear that accusation coming back in your ears again? You've confessed it, and, and you know that when you confessed it, you were honest about that, and you brought it before the Lord and you read in His Word that He's faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you know that. And yet you still hear that accusation in your ears that says, you remember? I remember. I, 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 know, I know. I know what you did. I know. Uh-huh. We all know. 
We know what kind of person you are. That's what you really are. And you hear that continually, and you go, you go back to the Lord, and you're like, I still feel so guilty over this, and I, I'm, I'm sorry. And then the guilt just continues to worsen and worsen and worsen, and you just still feel that guilt. That is not trusting in Christ. Do you realize that? That is not trusting in Christ. The call to trust in Christ is, wait, that's it? I confess it, and you're faithful and just and will forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness? I just, I confess it? Yes. I love this about teaching children the gospel from an early age is because this is the crossroads that they come to with the gospel. We've come to this several times in our family, and every time it makes me cry, <laughs> just thinking about it, is when I tell them, confess your sin to the Lord. So we identify what the sin is that they've committed, or that I've committed, or that mommy has committed, or whatever. We tell them what it is, and we say, let's confess it to the Lord. And now that we've confessed it to the Lord, we trust that He forgives us. And time and again, they will ask, are you sure that's it? Isn't that a great question? It just exposes so much about the reality of the gospel is when it really hits you, you have to ask, are you sure that's it? Is that what it means that it's free? That that's it? It's free? Yes, it's free. You must trust it. Trust. What's that? Yes, of course, but repentance is, like salvation, a gift from the Lord. Paul tells us that, even when it comes to our enemies, that we bear patiently with them so that maybe one day God will also grant them repentance, leading to truth. So when, when a person is confessing, there is a, a need for genuine contrition, of heart, a genuine brokenness. But that also has to be, they also have to understand the ramifications of sin, right? So this is all, uh, what I'm saying, the confession and the trusting is fruit from a heart that understands and sees its sin and recognizes Christ as its only, only option for salvation. So that has to be there first. There, there can be no faking uh, the confession. There can be no faking the repentance that occurs on on the back end of that, or that occurs on the back end of that. There's, there can be no faking that. But what I'm saying is, a person who is broken for sin recognizes its weight against the Lord and is feeling the guilt of it, which was the illustration I gave. The trust 
in Christ is a call to trust that my confession was, was, was it, that he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. All that's based on a heart that feels genuine contrition, as you would hearing the guilt over and over. Um, okay, so a second measure of protection the Christian can take to defend himself and his family against deception is being committed to a loving, Christ-centered church. This is the expectation of Christians in the New Testament. Uh, all of it's built on a community we would call the church. The letters of the New Testament are written to churches. Okay, They're, they're written to uh, local churches. So Colossians 2.2 that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of fullness, a, a, a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That He wants the hearts of the church at Colossae to be united in that endeavor. Ephesians 3, 16-19. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you church at Ephesus, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the desire is for you to be in an environment like that. Ephesus, Colossae, where the hearts are being knit together in love, being built up together in a Christ-centered church. But then you might say, well, what, what is a Christ-centered church? And how do I know if I'm a part of one? Um, well, in a Christ-centered church, the Bible is preached as the basis of the sermon. And from the meaning of the text in its context, application is derived. In other words, the pastor is not getting up there with a topic in mind that he wants you to consider and then giving you several verses that support his agenda. The sermon comes from the text. We're going to read the text. We're going to talk about the text. The text is going to be the center of the stage. We're going to talk about what it means. We're going to talk about why it means that particular thing. We're going to explain it in its context. And then from that, all the application is going to be derived. What does, the, what does it then mean for me? once we understand that aspect of it. Now, why is that going to be center stage? Because if you look at 2 Timothy 3, 16-4-5, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, 
do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The charge to Timothy is to preach the word. Why is the charge to preach the word? Because the Bible is the thing that trains, equips, shapes, reproves, corrects, <coughs> rebukes the person reading it. My own philosophy on life is not going to help you. It's not going to train you. It's not going to reprove you. It's not going to rebuke you. It's not going to correct you. It's not going to build you up in righteousness. Only truth derived from God's direct revelation in His Word is going to do that for you. So the Christ-centered church is one who takes the Bible, opens it, reads the text, and explains what that means, and then applies that to your life. It goes in that direction, not the other way. So Christ-centered church uses the Bible as the basis of the sermon. Christ-centered church is spiritually discerning, able to spot the kind of senselessness that leads to infighting. It is routinely exhorted to flee unrighteousness. It is encouraged toward love and peace and is patient with those who do otherwise. Look at 2 Timothy 2, 22-26. This is also his encouragement to Timothy in the church at Ephesus. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So do you see what, what the connection there is? The infighting that happens in churches is the product of people being ensnared by Satan to do his will. That is a false doctrine that they've come to believe. That is a cult, essentially, if you will, that they've come to practice. They've been ensnared by the devil in order to do his will. And Paul says, look, by jumping into the pigsty and rolling around with him in the mud, you're not going to be helped. The only thing that's going to help you, one, preaching the word. We have already seen that. But just patiently enduring, gently correcting, and reproving them with the Word of God. That's it. So the Christ-centered church is not one that gets into the infighting, but is routinely exhorted to just flee from unrighteousness, to not have anything to do with that kind of fighting, and encourage instead toward love and peace, and just patiently uh, endure with those who do otherwise, just lovingly correcting them and moving on. A Christ-centered church practices unity on essential biblical truth and loving tolerance on non-essentials. This, I think, is one of the hardest things for people to get their mind around. Everyone has opinions. Everyone has preferences. Everyone has things they see in the Bible that they want you to know and understand. 
Everyone does. I'm no exception to that. The hard part is knowing where my ways that I read the Bible are essential for salvation and where they are not essential for salvation. They all feel essential for salvation or else I wouldn't believe them. But not all of them are essential for salvation. So you get infighting about Calvinism and Arminianism. You get infighting about your end times position. Everybody's got an end times position. Even if yours is pan-millennialist, everything's just going to pan out one day, right? Everybody's got one. And most people feel like theirs is the most important one you can have. Quit fighting about it. It's all just going to pan out. Even the pan-millennialist is dogmatic about his pan-millennialism. Quit being so dogmatic about all your millennialism. It's pan-millennialism you should adopt, right? We all have the opinions. The question is which ones are essential for salvation and which ones are not. Church history, plug for next building blocks, can help you with that. Understanding what debates have been around for 2,000 years by very great Christians historically. And which ones are new? Right? Hold on, Doug. Because <laughs> I think this question might take us down a road that I'm not wanting to go down just yet. Is that true? No. Okay, go ahead. So just the nature of our denomination, the fact that we're Baptist, yeah. is, is, uh, is centered on a non-essential. You don't have to be baptized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are, yes, there are denominational differences that have arisen on non-essential truths. So, I... If I'm preaching to people in your congregation that they don't need to be baptized, you want to be out of here. Right, yeah, yeah. So, well, I, I don't know about out of here, but uh, we definitely got to talk. Um, <laughs> I believe that the folks at Trinity Prez are going to be with us in eternity. Um, we see baptism very differently. Okay? Um, this, this, this morning, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And around the Lord's Supper, Baptists have historically, we still hold, you have to be baptized first before you take the Lord's Supper. Yes? That's what we believe. Baptism comes first. The Lord's Supper follows that. Okay? And we don't believe infant baptism is baptism. We don't believe that's baptism at all. That's not baptism like the New Testament means baptism. So, therefore, people that have only been infant baptized have not been baptized. So it presents a problem. So we have, and we've talked about this a number of times with several people in here, we've fenced the table around the Lord's table over baptism. We believe you have to be baptized first in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. Now, the differences that have arisen between Baptists and Presbyterians, you know, have arisen largely because we have the freedom of religion to do what, do and practice whatever we, we want. If we were in a situation, let's say, where we were being persecuted 
for our beliefs. And Christianity shrunk to Tuscaloosa having 18 Christians in it. Some of them were from Trinity Pres, some of them were from Emmanuel, and some of them were from who knows where, what other churches. I have a feeling we'd probably all meet together in one place. <laughs> some, of the, some of those differences would, would probably be put aside, and, and maybe they should. Different topic for a different day. Um, but uh, where we can recognize that those essential truths and what are the non-essentials, we can allow liberty for the non-essentials, and we can demand unanimity for the, the essentials. And there are core biblical truths that we must understand and clearly be willing to fight for. But there are other areas of doctrine and practice where godly people differ. While some of these areas are important for how we live, they do not jeopardize the gospel. And so we can debate those issues. We may even debate them vigorously. We may even be adamant about them between two brothers or sisters that love each other. But we must always regard the other person as a brother or sister in Christ and treat him or her with love. That is part of being in a Christ-centered church. Come on. There it is. A Christ-centered church also guards the gospel, protects the gospel, guards the <laughs> message that is entrusted to you, as Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted you. That is sound teaching. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He tells him in 2 Timothy 1.13-14, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. It's a church that guards the gospel and cares for its members through membership and careful church discipline, which is also laid out in Scripture. So a third measure of protection. So, so being in a Christ-centered church where people can pray for one another, as Timothy pointed out earlier, where people can build each other up, where people won't fight against each other, but will continue to remind each other the gospel. We can be reminded of sound teaching, seeing everything in spirit, is spiritual in nature. A, um, a third measure of protection the Christian can take to defend himself and his family against deception is to train his children on firm doctrine from an early age. This is what Paul tells fathers in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <laughs> He, I think he tells fathers that partially because fathers are prone to pick <laughs> their kids until they go, Daddy, stop. Um, <coughs> don't often find that to be the mother in our house, but <laughs> with the father. Um, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Remember first that that firm doctrine is a charge, a command given to fathers. Paul deliberately shifts from talking about parents in the plural to calling out mothers and fathers previously to now drawing in specifically to fathers who are divinely appointed leaders of the household. That is not in any way to disparage anybody who doesn't have a father in the household at all. There's grace given, I believe, to women who are raising children by themselves. 
But it is an exhortation. Fathers, if you do leave, that is a special kind of sin, as it would be for teachers or for others who are responsible for this kind of direction over their families. It is sin to do that. And they're divinely appointed leaders of the household, and they're given for that purpose to raise their children in the firm doctrine of the Lord. Second, the instruction of the Lord that Paul calls out there. He says, um, where was it? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The instruction of the Lord means to teach and show... Okay, good. I got the right slide up. Is to teach and to show uh, our children positively what the Lord requires of them. Repentance, faith, and a humble life of obedient service. It is instructing his mind, shaping his character, bending his will, awakening his conscience, enriching his soul, and building his body. That is your job dads, to do that to your children, and it's a tremendous task to teach. Then to discipline, he says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To discipline them is to warn them of the spiritual peril that that will necessarily result if they turn away from the Lord in unbelief and disobedience. It has to do with conduct, encouraging children to do what is right, rewarding good conduct, confronting them when they do what is wrong, and punishing their misconduct in an appropriate way. You are responsible for your children to instruct them and to discipline them. In the absence of a father, it has to be done by the person that is over them. You're responsible to that end. Listen, there's there's a day, no matter how much you embody this, no matter how much you believe this personally, maybe even live it out in your home, if you don't make a point, teach your children, there is going to be a day where the adversary, who's been watching all that's going on in your household, who knows exactly where your child is weak, is going to poke the fence. And he's going to tear it down. It's our job as parents to teach hard things, tough things, to not be afraid of what the Bible says. Even the graphic parts, I realize we don't necessarily go back in and rehash all the details of all the graphic nature of, you know, the stories in Samuel and things like that. But it's important to read them and know that they're there and understand why they're there and what they mean and how they apply to us. And you've got to do that for your children, not be scared of what the Bible is saying. It's given for their benefit. It's helping them see what the gospel is. You've got to teach it to them. So in order for us and for our families to be able to stand against the flaming darts that Satan throws, whether through persecution or through false teaching, those are two of the big flaming darts he throws, we must be given solid food from God's Word early and often. That's for you, that's for your children, it's for your whole household. So that is joining a, a church that loves you enough to tell you what God's Word says. Even if there are times where it makes you go like this, Right? Stayed up and watched the World Series. 
you stand up and watch the Alabama game, and you're tired, and you're hearing somebody read from Leviticus, and you're like, man, I was not ready for Leviticus this morning. The church loves you enough. They will teach you the whole counsel of God's word. So you can be built up and trained, and they will teach your children as well. I'm going to hold questions until I can. I see some questions, maybe. Go ahead, Myra. Let's see it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it should be said. And I probably should have put that word in there. That's exactly right. Amen. There should be prayer. Yes. All right. let's, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for the hearts of men and women and children uh, in this church. We pray that the gospel, as it's shared and heard and understood, that it would reform and correct and shape and train us that it would steal our resolve against the spiritual forces that aim to tear us down, devour us. That the firm doctrine that is preached and taught from your word would have the capacity to build a strong resolve in us, to steal our spine whether it's against the winds of culture that blow hard against Christianity, against Christ and the gospel, or even against false doctrine that comes knocking at our door, I pray that our spines would be solid, steeled, to withstand an attempt to tear down our faith. And I pray that instead what would be there in our hearts would be a doctrine so firmly rooted in Christ that we want nothing more than to proclaim His name to the nations. That we want nothing more than to bow before You in prayer and ask for help. Because we recognize that You are our sole source of strength. So we want that for every person in this place. Every Christian in this city, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.